scripture reading this morning is found in 1 John 2, 12 to 17. I'm going to read that here for you. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Spirit of the living God, thank you for your word, for the promises that we have in you. Pray that you'll breathe afresh in and through me. Uh, and um, in the life of the hearers who are hearing this message, uh, we pray that you would awaken uh, those who long for you, to long to know you more, those who have not uh, been around for a long time. May they hear your word fresh, and uh, may you speak, and may you continue to deepen our um, love for you and our knowledge and hope of the love that you have for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, North Point. It's an honor to share God's word with you this morning. I'm just going to dive right into this text, uh, but this text was has been a, was a challenge, is, is cha- challenging text, but I, um, and just by way of background regarding this uh, text, um, you know, John was intending to assure his audience, those who are listening to it, children, fathers, young men, all of them, of their identity in Christ. John wanted to assure the church, the members of his church, the church, what you do, how you live your life, all of that matters to God. And the pur- his purpose in writing this text was to confirm the right assurance of genuine Christians and as to rob the counterfeit of their false assurance. So let's go through the text again. Uh, verse 12, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. As I was thinking through this text, I, um, I don't think that the text's referring to maturity or age. A category of age didn't exist in the New Testament times. You were either young or old. You were either like my son Parker, who's five years old, or you're old, like Gary Ong, who's currently filming this right now. 
John is writing to all, and the qualities he describes should be true of all believers. All Christians should have the innocence of childhood, the strength of youth, and the mature knowledge of age. He's also describing and reminding us that the people of God are people whose sins are forgiven, who know the Father and have overcome the evil one. We're a new people. We're given a new identity. And there's no reason why each of the qualities, that is, a people whose sins are forgiven, people who know the Father, and people who have overcome the evil one, shouldn't be typical of all Christians. And God's people are also reminded that they can bask in God's forgiveness and fellowship, and they've been given all the resources in Christ to fight the enemy. But this leads John, as we go in through the text to verse 15 to 17, to a warning. And this is, this is what he says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Notice how this warning applies to all. Children, fathers, young men, equally applies to mothers, young women, old women. This warning is directed to loyal members of the church whose spiritual status is unquestioned. They could have been in church for a very long time. It has echoes of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. John's writing to a people who enjoyed fellowship with God and loved their fellow Christians. Now he finds that he has to warn them against an attitude that could ruin their fellowship and lead to their destruction. It doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're a new believer or have grown up in the church and have been a Christian for a very long time. Worldliness is a temptation to us all. And there's never a place for pride among believers wherever you're at. Spiritual discernment is the task of every believer. And as such people who are transformed by God through the forgiveness of sins, knowledge of the Father, and overcoming the world, John warns his readers, and this is a warning for us, they ought not love, or we ought not love, the world. But what is the world? What is worldliness? How is worldliness defined? There's two definitions regarding the world. First definition is the created universe or life on earth. And the second definition is human society temporarily controlled by the power of evil, organized in opposition to God. John is not warning against the created universe or life on earth. There's nothing to suggest that the Christian is to hate the material world or its inhabitants. One scholar writes, even if man cannot live by bread alone, on bread alone, he cannot live without bread. And without the structures of society to make it possible to grow crops, bake bread, and distribute it, um, it would be equally absurd to deny the pleasure given by the world. The world was made by God, is loved by God, 
and is the object of God's saving purpose. Remember, everyone knows John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the second most memorized verse in the Bible, probably next to Jesus wept. If you can't memorize Jesus wept, well, you can try after the service. But it's the second meaning of the world and worldliness that John's warning against. John provides a description of a person who is in love with the world. And let's go to verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Doesn't that type of person sound like a person or our society or aspects of our society that are temporarily controlled by the power of evil, organized in opposition to God? One of the most impactful books I have ever read is this one here. It's written by Professor Craig Gay of Regent College. This book was written in 1998. And this book's called The Way of the Modern World, or Why It's Tempting to Live as If God Doesn't Exist. I read this book about 16 years ago, and it changed my life. Up until that time, it was the hardest book I had ever read but it was worth every effort, and I would highly recommend it. A lot of what I'm going to say here is taken from his book, and though this book is over 22 years old, many of its observations apply today. And the world wants you to think that it's okay to live your life without thinking about God. This is built into the central institutions of our society. When we think of the word worldliness, what comes to mind? Craig observes, if you're a conservative, you've probably tended to think of the world, and hence worldliness, in terms of temptations to personal sin, and particularly sexual immorality. If you're a liberal, you've probably thought of the world, or worldliness, as socio-structural evils, such as racism, or oppressive political economic systems. And worldliness is standing idly by, against while these evil happen, evils happen or against these evils. Both views are correct. Personal immorality and socio-political injustices are worldly evils that need to be condemned and avoided. However, however, what if both the conservative and liberal positions, while partially correct, actually miss the heart of the matter? Craig writes, What if the essence of the world, or worldliness, or living in the world is not personal immorality or social injustice as such, but is instead an interpretation of reality that essentially excludes the reality of God from the business of life? I need to say that quote again. What if worldliness is an interpretation of reality that essentially excludes the reality of God? from the business of life. He goes on, what if worldliness is placing too much emphasis on human agency and far too little, if any, upon God's? Worldliness is fundamentally incompatible with loving God. And this view is deeply embedded in our political, economic, technological, and cultural institutions. While it's true that John's point 
is not to love is not to love anything that is opposed to God, the threats of worldliness aren't always immediately evident. The problem with worldliness is that it's so subtle and very attractive. For example, I've found that as I've earned more money, my standard of living has increased. I get tempted to put more and more of my hopes in my possessions or security in my bank account. I'm tempted to forget that God has, and he will continue. God has provided everything that I've needed and that he will continue to do so as I abide in him. Worldliness could also be illustrated in vengeance. Vengeance is often attractive when you're dealing with an enemy. That enemy could be a child, a formerly close friend, a spouse, a business partner, even an ex-spouse. Sometimes worldliness doesn't even appear as outright hostility to, hostility to God. Worldliness is simply an indifference to the reality of and existence of God. And to conclude, and you'll, you might think my, my conclusion is actually quite long, but uh, I'll continue. To conclude, though, if you're somebody who's watching today, and if you're distressed by the unfruitfulness of Christian witness in our culture, it's probably a sign that our churches have succumbed to worldliness. It's probably a sign that we've adopted the secular or worldly mindset that attributes infinite worth to objects unworthy of it and attributes finite worth to truly infinite objects. I'll say that again. It's probably a sign that we've adopted the secular or worldly mindset that attributes infinite worth to objects unworthy of it and attributes finite worth to truly infinite objects. In other words, the church has succumbed to majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. The Let's read verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Remember that because God matters, everything matters. When we lose sight of God, we lose sight of ourselves. We are called to be vigilant in discerning and resisting the temptations for us to be indifferent about God. We can't afford to be indifferent to God. For the believer, following Christ is not merely a calling to be chosen at a whim. Following Christ and knowing Christ and loving Christ is a command. God wants us to know and experience the abundant and eternal life we have in Him. There's a hopelessness, a hollowness, an emptiness in worldliness and we exist as a church family as visible reminders to the world and to one another of the hope and meaning we have in Christ that will never fade away. One Christian political science professor, Glenn Tinder, he's, I believe he's 97 now, made this observation about the world. And I love this. With all of our self-confidence, we do not have great hope. What we have instead is assurance, a different thing. Assurance is the feeling that all is under con our control, or at least that it can be. All problems, consequently, are solvable. Hope, on the other hand, is the feeling that all will turn out well, although not necessarily due to human foresight and action. This is clear in what the world is going through today with COVID, with the racial injustices, with the rioting that's happening, 
in the United States with the political scandals that are affecting our prime minister. And while it's true that there is no future in worldliness, our future is secure in Christ, the one who loved us from our first breath and will love us to the last, the one who gave himself up for us, for our sins and our salvation. And have you experienced hurt, disappointment, sadness, or sense of betrayal? For some of us, the wounds are still very raw and fresh. For others, those wounds have festered and accumulated over years, if not decades. Remember that no matter where we're at or how long you've carried these heartaches, we always have to discern what weapons we are to use in fighting the temptation to worldliness, whether inside of us or external to us. The temptation to worldliness can manifest itself very easily in how we respond to the hurts, disappointments, and sadness in our lives. I have a dear friend of mine that I've come to view as a spiritual giant. He has been greatly troubled by some of the things he's been going through over the past few years. He was hurt and deeply betrayed by someone formerly close to him. Yet his faith in Christ never wavered. He never lashed out in a situation where the vast majority of us would. I asked him how he did that a few months ago. He told me, I lash out at God. I pour out my anger, hurt, and sadness in worship because God can absorb all of that anger. He can absorb my feelings. And I love that. And that's the kind of heart that I want. Kenneth Tanner is the pastor of the Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. To my knowledge, he's not a widely published author, but I'm convinced that we need to hear more of what he says. He has a very active Twitter feed, and I've only been recently introduced to him via Twitter. In June of this year, in response to George Floyd's death, in response to the president holding a Bible in front of a historic church in Washington, in response to the media, he wrote a piece, call, a piece called, It's Easy, It's Hard. The tasks of discerning and counteracting worldliness is hard work. And here's what he says. Listen to this. It's easy to pose with a Bible in front of a church. It's hard to allow yourself to be encountered by the living God that walks its pages. It's easy to burn down a Muslim small business, a Muslim family small restaurant in Minneapolis. It's hard to build a business over decades with your children and see it go up in flames overnight. It's easy to break a window. It's hard to put yourself between a black, indigenous, and person of color protester and the shields and batons of a tone-deaf state. It's easy to circle the wagons and deny that many police departments have serious deficits in training and tactics to pretend that police brutality is not a real and present danger. It's hard to take off the tactical gear like Sheriff Chris Swanson did, admit there are problems, and march with protesters and stand with protesters for change. It's easy to denounce racism in another. It's hard to discover and confess racism in myself, to have the courage to name racism in the structures of my society, to put anti-racism 
into practice. It's easy to paint all law enforcement with the brush of Derek Chauvin, Tutel, Alexander Quing, and Thomas Lane. It's hard to put on the uniform with a genuine desire to serve and protect and feel many judging your vocation by its worst actors. It's easy to violently clear a street of peaceful protesters for a photo op. It's hard to sit down and listen to what's animating their protest. It's easy to tweet a James Baldwin quote or post a meme by Austin Channing Brown. It's hard to read their books and sit with their ideas like a book requires you to do and ponder fundamental change in yourself and in society. It's easy to sow chaos and confusion, to manip manipulate a moment of crisis in order to promote divisiveness and destruction. It's hard to bring people to a table and get them to recognize what together ails them and how they might transcend the crisis to achieve a just mercy. It's easy to go to say and do what your tribe expects you to say and do. It's hard to go against your tribe for the sake of others and for the sake of your tribe. It's easy to get tired of hearing about racism. It's hard to keep experiencing racism. It's easy to join a riot. It's hard to restrain your community for hundreds of years while they, have, they are oppressed and murdered. It's easy to burn it all down. It's hard to build it back up. It's easy to issue a statement. It's hard to live the words. It's easy to hate. It's so very, very hard to love. And North Point, I think we also need to remind each other that what the world calls success, God calls foolishness. And what is of little value in the world is of great value to God. Our hope in Christ frees us to act hopefully in the world. It enables us to act humbly and patiently, tackling visible injustices in the world without needing to be assured that all of our skill and effort will somehow rid, of the world, rid the world of injustice altogether. We need not despair over the state of the world, North Point. We can trust that even the most outwardly insignificant of faithful actions, a cup of cold water given to the child, the widow's offering, meager in the eyes of the world at the temple, the act of hospitality to a stranger, all those insignificant acts in the eyes of the world will be made to contribute in a significant way to the kingdom of God by his creative and sovereign grace. Never, never, North Point, think that there is no role for the small deed, the little contribution, or the quiet gesture to the kingdom of God. And to conclude, I want to remind you, North Point, that in Christ, you are the people of God. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. And in Christ, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, you have overcome and will continue to overcome the evil one. And I'm going to pray from the Book of Common Prayer, North Point. Gracious Father, we pray for your church, for North Point. Fill it with all truth all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. 
Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior.